I think of self-development, one of the one of the best ways to look at self-development is you're constantly hiking a mountain that actually has no peak. Mm. Right? Yeah. There's always room to grow. There's always further up that we can go. The location of your greatest sense of purpose and meaning will be found at the intersecting point between your heart's deepest joys and the world's greatest needs. Mm. Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. On this special segment of our episodes, we go into the Liberated Life interviews. Now, Zen Stoic is a philosophy that aims at creating liberation, but it itself is not liberation. It is merely a vehicle to get there. And just like the Buddha said, a finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. And on these episodes, we go beyond the bounds of Zen Stoic philosophy and interview people from all different walks of life on what it means to live a liberated life. Let's get into the show. Brandon Wen is a life coach focusing on interpersonal relationships and communication skills. Having been raised by a spiritual direction counselor, coaching came naturally to him, and he began a professional career as a coach in 2015. He has worked with hundreds of individuals, helping to improve their quality of life, starting with how they relate to themselves and working outward to all the relationships in their lives. After spending six years traveling the world with no more than a small backpack, he settled in Austin, Texas. Brandon is actually a person that I hired as a coach, and let me tell you, he is one of the best coaches I've ever worked with. I mean, the guy's skill is profound, and you'll definitely get to hear it on this episode. It's important for me to take a moment to extend appreciation and gratitude to Brandon especially in the work that him and I have done in the last year, I would say I wouldn't be the man that I am today, wouldn't be the man who attracted my current girlfriend and the current relationship that we're cultivating together without the work that I did with Brandon. For a long time, I was unsure if I'd find that person. Like deep down, I kind of knew and had faith that I would one day, but it never really felt like I would. And the work that I did with Brandon allowed that to become a reality. Brandon has a way of articulating a person's emotions to them better than they can. And in understanding the actual messaging that my emotions were telling me, especially in this area of relationships, it was able to allow me to actually make the necessary changes and progress that I made. So I credit Brandon for helping me become the man that I needed to be so that I could be the best possible partner for my girlfriend today. And a lot of what we talk about on this episode are the principles that help me become that. There are some profound lessons that I learned on my journey with Brandon, and I'm very, very excited to be able to share them with you today. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. So I'm very excited for this particular episode because you and I have been working together for a hot minute now. Yeah. And it's been incredibly helpful going through the process of working with an interpersonal relationships coach. And one of the reasons I feel that way is because I started to realize that through a lot of my life, whether that's in business, family, friends, even stuff in terms of how I operate every day, a lot of it seems to come from interpersonal relationship conflict. And the moment that we're able to resolve that, it seems that things start to get better and the quality of life increases. So I'm curious, like from your perspective, that idea of most conflicts being interpersonal relationships conflicts. 
How does that show up with some of the people that you work with? So I'm immediately reminded of the quote from Buddha that you can neither love nor hate anything about someone else that you don't already love or hate about yourself. And I think that our relationships are reflections for places that we can both take pride in ourselves, but also see places that we have room for growth. So when there's a dissonance between you and someone in your life that's important to you, it's very valuable to start with yourself first. Yes. Because a bridge starts from two sides Mm -hmm. of the river. You don't start the bridge in the middle where the relationship is. You build your side of the bridge, you help them build their side of the bridge, and then ideally you meet in the middle, Mm -hmm. have a bridge over the gap that has formed from whatever erosion has happened between the relationship. So yeah, the conflicts that arise in, in our relationships with other people are usually at places in our lives that we're probably struggling with something within ourselves Mm -hmm. and whether it's we're bringing that about in the relationship or there is a limitation to the connection that we can have in the relationship if we start with ourselves first and truly set aside ego and humble ourselves and be willing to say okay what if this is truly my responsibility Mm -hmm. rather than oh it's the reason I'm having a conflict with this person has something to do with this person. And on, so on an individual one-on-one basis, it's all about starting with yourself, being very aware of what you are bringing to the relationship and where you may be adding some of that conflict. Mm. And then as you move forward and progress, it's about noticing patterns that you have for yourself that keep coming up in more than one relationship. So if you're having similar struggles with your family that you are with your partner or similar struggles with different people that you work with professionally, you kind of have to look at yourself and be like, okay, I'm the common denominator in all of these equations, (laughs) right? How can I be most impactful to having a positive benefit to the changes that can happen in the relationship? I, that, that's a really good point. Cause I always think about Carl Jung's work and I'll paraphrase this from him, but he essentially was saying that the stuff that frustrates you and others can have, has a lot to teach you about yourself. Cause if it's emotionally triggering you, And there's something within yourself unconsciously that you haven't dealt with, or maybe you have dealt with it consciously, but maybe you haven't gotten over yourself about it. Like you haven't forgiven yourself, or perhaps you still resent the decisions that you made, or you carry regret with you and that stuff can still show up. How does one tell the difference, if there is one, (laughs) when it's something of theirs versus someone else's? That's a process that everyone can continue deepening. I actually really appreciate that you bring up Young because his focus on shadow work Mm -hmm. is really a useful place to take that because, like you're saying, you may have convinced yourself through a sort of self-defense mechanism for your own emotional sort of sensitivity and fragility. You may have convinced yourself that you have dealt with this and you have worked through this and then it it tends to come up again. The I think the real litmus test comes down to it's more about what is the value and the importance of the relationship. And that determines how much you're willing to take on the responsibility of your side of it. Mm. So a simple example would be the cashier at the grocery store. If the cashier at the grocery store is frustrating and upsetting you, Maybe you're just hangry, right? You went to the grocery <laughs> store, you didn't eat first, you probably <laughs> should have, and you're rushed and you were standing in line for too long and you need to get somewhere and you didn't give yourself enough time. And so it's these little things that, yeah. but that relationship isn't actually meaningful. Mm. Now, if you're, let's say I came to hang out with you and spent time here and I didn't give myself enough time and I feel toward the end of the interview, I'm getting anxious. Again, it's this, I didn't give myself enough time, but now I need to be reflective of that and mindful that this relationship is important to me. Mm. And so if I make that mistake, you try to identify the mistake you've made and not repeat it, but no one's perfect. And so I think the first step anytime you're dealing with yourself is self-forgiveness is huge. And just the awareness that 
if you're aiming for perfection, it doesn't matter how good your aim is, you're always going to miss by just a little bit. That's right. <laughs> it seems to be a spectrum, right? You edge closer and closer to the best of your ability and also give yourself the grace that you will not hit the perfect ideal. Yeah. One principle that I always talk about in coaching came up, which is this idea of being the student of your results, not your ideals. And we had some areas within the business that we are actually a student of our ideals. In other words, like we, we wanted it to happen so bad in this way, but then the results showed different. And so rather than attaching our egos to th those ideals, what we did is put those aside and said, okay, what are the actual results of what's happening? And I think that's an interesting way of navigating some of these situations. Like what's actually happening from a results perspective, if you are able to zoom yourself out objectively to the best of your ability, right? I don't think we can completely be objective of some of these situations, but you do your best to actually see it from that perspective. And then you say, okay, this isn't working. This is working. This could be better. This, maybe I should pay attention to this thing. Yeah. I think it's great that you bring up that you have a business partner because like you're saying, no matter how well we think we see what we're seeing, it's always good to have perspectives from different angles, different areas. It's why you bring in a consultant to look at your business and say, hey, this is what I've been doing. It's why you hire a financial planner. You say, mm -hmm. okay, this is as much as I know, and this is what my plan looks like. One of our favorite phrases is you don't know what you don't know. That's right. And so <laughs> someone else might know what you don't know and be able to shine the flashlight in the right part of the dark corner. Even if you've been there searching, you may not have been looking in the right place. And so to have a, a business partner that you trust and that is emotionally invested with you and that if you have this existing relationship with this person to say to them, hey, this is where I want to go with this. Do you see how this works in the way that I'm taking the approach that I'm taking? Do you see any ways that we could change it? And for someone to be there and reflect back to you and be like, we have the ideals and we have the goals and then we have the actual results. And so, yeah, if you know, there's if you're getting certain results, that's your feedback mechanism. It's your feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And ignoring the feedback that you're getting in order to stay true or pure to the intentions becomes self-defeating. Trying to attach to those things. Feedback is so important, especially in interpersonal relationships. We have this, basically this principle in NLP, which is whatever you're expressing via actions or words, the feedback that you get is the quality of that communication. And if, the communi if you're not liking the feedback, then one thing that you can do immediately is to adjust how you communicate, right? Beca being behaviorally flexible mm -hmm. so that you're able to actually make that adjustment so that your message gets through and is received by the person on the other end. Yeah, yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I was curious, as you were talking about that, I was just thinking, there is this fallacy <laughs> that I feel like a lot of people buy into sometimes. And sometimes we buy into it unconsciously, like momentarily, situation to situation. But there's this idea of being radically independent and thinking, I don't need anyone. I don't need the outside observer. I don't need to bounce this idea. I can handle it myself. Where have you seen that come up in your coaching? And what is one of the ways to resolve that for somebody? In all of my coaching, one of the things that I try and do is I try and realign mm. people with a better intention. So yeah. instead of saying, I'm not going to be radically independent, I'm going to be radically self-reliant so that it's the same idea of if someone is being codependent, you don't have to necessarily swap to the other side so much that the pendulum swings and acts as a wrecking ball. And all of a sudden you go from, well, I know I'm being codependent, so now I'm going to be so independent that I'm not even really 
emotionally involved and attached anymore. There's this concept of interdependence. And so when you're trying to be independent to a point that you're not actually allowing yourself to be emotionally involved, you're giving up the opportunity for that connection. And so it's finding that that balance between extremes. Life is most meaningful when it's lived in the paradox between the polars. I'm so glad you brought that up. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of my favorite topics that, that we've discussed. This idea of, yes, I want to be independent of my partnerships. I want to be independent of my family. I don't want to be codependent of the people that I have meaningful emotional relationships with, Mm -hmm. but I want to be able to depend on them. And so this Mm -hmm. word of depend, interdependence, codependence, dependability, Mm -hmm. right? There's a lot to unpack in how a relationship functions and figuring out how to align two or more people into a relationship, whether that's a family dynamic, whether that's a work environment and you're talking about corporate culture, whether that's just a group of friends that all know each other for years and they take mm-hmm. the vacations together. Or I know that I know you and friends love to go to music festivals, right? So yeah. there's a, going to be a dynamic there of how do we navigate all of this and that dependence, interdependence and codependence the way that you navigate those is through the communication of everyone's needs and boundaries. Mm. When everyone, I think it was John Nash who took, I believe it was Adam Smith, Adam West, no, Adam West is Batman. Adam Smith, must be Adam Smith. <laughs> so there was a there was an economist who said that the, the best result for everyone in the group is when everyone in the group does what's best for themselves. Interesting. And yeah. then later on, someone said, no, that's not, that's incomplete. Mm. The best result comes from everyone in the group doing what's best for themselves while being mindful of what's best for the whole. Wow. Yeah. So that's a great little distinction there. Yeah. It's one of those things where you say to yourself, okay, simple example, if I'm ever going to go to, to join you for music in a venue that's really loud, I want to be there and I want to be part of the crowd, but I have very sensitive hearing. So I'm going to make sure that I'm going to bring earplugs. That doesn't mean that I need everyone else to wear earplugs. I'm doing what's best for me while being mindful of what's available for the group so that the group doesn't have to change the venue just because I have sensitive hearing, but I'm still being mindful about what my needs are Mm. in the environment so that I can still be part of the group. Yes. Another simple example that I can think of is one of the things that I work with with people that are in a relationship when they're dealing with finances is you look at your income, you look at each individual's financial stability in one of two ways, either total income or available income after expenses. However, the, the, that particular relationship unit looks at that, that's up to them, and there's some discovery that we can do to figure that out. But once you know the two numbers that you're dealing with, you add them together and you figure out what percentage each of them is dealing with. So let's just say for assumption, you, you're talking about a married couple and they make the exact same amount of money. When an unexpected expense or a fun kind of desirable expense comes about, they should split that 50-50. But if you're doing what's best for everyone in the group while being mindful of what's best for the whole group, if one person makes four times the amount the other person does, when that same expense comes up, the fair thing to do financially is to let one person cover 80% of the expense and the other cover 20. Because now they're still actually spending the same equitable amount from within their own financial means. So it's one of those, again, that concept of, if I know I make more than my partner, I want to wait my partner to be able to spend half of everything with me, it means that we actually have fewer opportunities because now all I'm really doing is giving her a 50% discount on whatever was going to normally cost her, whatever was going to cost her. 
But if we're really in this together and the idea is let's go and share an experience together, if a, a nice dinner out is $100 and I make twice what my partner does, I can pay for two thirds, she can pay for one third, and it makes it more manageable to be sustainable that we're now making decisions off of, you know, how does this really truly impact me mm-hmm. rather than how does this create a sort of dissonance or a inequality in the sort of group working together? That's very interesting. It makes the most sense to do so that way. If we just, I wouldn't even say arbitrarily, but if we fixate on this idea of 50-50 when it comes to a situation like that, and we think that 50-50 equals fair, it reminds me of the whole idea of the finger pointing to the moon thing. 50-50 is a pointing mechanism, or it's an, an abstract idea that points to fairness. But in that situation, fairness is not actually 50-50 of the actual total amount. <laughs> fairness is like the ratio based on what each person is able to bring financially in that particular situation. So that's actually a really interesting way of looking at it in a way that I feel like we trip ourselves up over these abstract concepts that we feel are encapsulating the truth of what we're intending to create in that moment. So that's a very interesting way to put it. What would you say, I I feel like this is worth asking, what would you say the difference between codependent and interdependent is? So again, I love the fact that these words rely on the idea of dependence. One of them means that I depend on someone else for the full understanding of who I am in my own life. The other is I depend on the other person for their full representation of meaning in my life. Mm. And I become the same to them. In a more kind of finite example, it would be the equivalent of, let's say, I love some sort of food that you cook and it makes the whole house smell. Let's say I love to cook swordfish and my partner can't stand the smell of swordfish. Now, Very pungent. Right. <laughs> the codependent response would be, I never eat swordfish anymore. Mm. Because my desire for swordfish gets consumed in the codependence of my partner's desire to never smell swordfish. Mm. The interdependence is I grill it outside and eat on the porch. Mm. So I still get to take care of my own needs, but in a way that I'm respecting my partner in a way that I'm not imposing my needs as being more important than my partner's desire for comfort. Now, that's a, a kind of a dumbed down situation. A, I think it's a great but, example. You know, it's, it's very it's, vivid. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see exactly how that would play out in a dynamic. Like one thing that my girlfriend and I always talk about in terms of our interdependence is this idea of always making sure individually that what we're doing and how we're carrying out our activities in the day are pointing towards our individual North stars, which happen to line up, which is why we're in relationship. But that is our focus that keeps us interdependent versus codependent. It's one of those things that really helps as like a foundational principle within our relationship. And that, that a lot of that stuff, I feel I learned by working with you. <laughs> like I, I feel like I've certainly leveled up my understanding of relationship from being able to work together. And it's been of tremendous value to me. Like I consider you one of the best coaches I've ever worked oh, with okay. and that I know. That, that means a lot to me. <laughs> of course, man. Like you, you have this skill set of helping me articulate my emotions better to me than I can. And I think that's fascinating. For how did you develop that skill, if you wouldn't mind sharing, or like what that even, or how you do it rather? This is where I have to give a lot of credit to my mom. I was brought up by a woman that she had, she was originally a stay-at-home mom. And then when my parents separated, she had to go out into the workforce and got a job selling insurance because it was what she could do and she needed to 
That's know, right. Cover her kids' expenses. But when she remarried and was able to really truly self-direct her focus in how to become a productive member of society and give back and do the work that she was desiring to do, her drive was towards spiritual direction. And I lived in an environment where, and I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I would say at the latest, I would have been very early into my teens. And I was being asked questions or being told statements to the effect of the location of your greatest sense of purpose and meaning will be found at the intersecting point between your heart's deepest joys and the world's greatest needs. Mm. And so to be in an environment from a very early age where we were encouraged to think deeper mm. and we were given the space to relate to that, emote to that, or even pull away from that. Um, Cause I have two siblings and they didn't early in their lives, they didn't really have the, that same affinity and, and draw towards this deeper sense of self and mm. the exploration and understanding of your own sort of authentic um, path in, into who you are at your deepest level. So it started with having an environment where that was encouraged and having an example set by someone whose path was not always pristine, but was always very centered and focused on this idea of self-authenticity, self-actualization, self-realization. There's a difference between being selfish and being self-centered. Not self-centered, mm. but self-centered. Please unpack that. And again, this is the example that I've learned from myself. Being self-centered is this idea that I am more important than others. Mm. Or that my opinions value are, are greater value than the opinions of others. Right. That's very a very self-centered kind of approach. But to be centered in who you really are as yourself is a different sort of concept. So that's that difference between, and I, it's one of those things that's hard to put on paper because it doesn't you have to put like ellipses between them where you go self-centered versus self-centered. <laughs> where it's this idea of, you study martial arts. If you were self-centered in the idea of, I am the best martial artist, then you're, you have blind spots everywhere because there's always going to be someone who's better than you. And if you're not ready for it, you don't even get to learn from that experience you instead get, maybe you get humbled, maybe you just get frustrated. Mm. But if you're centered on the idea of I've done the best that I can to be the best as I am and to be the best martial artist that I have yet to become, then when you do meet someone who exceeds your ability, you look at that as an opportunity to continue growing into being centered in your best self. Of, That's right. Oh, this is someone I can learn from, mm. not this is someone that has bested me and and shaken my understanding of me being the best. So yeah, that that sort of self-centered comes from this place of selfishness. Centered comes from a place of self-awareness and really truly self-love. Mm. Because when you love someone, you forgive them, you give them grace and leeway, you don't put unrealistic expectations on them, which includes self-love. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> distinction there that I never actually thought of in that way. It's like when you love someone, you forgive them. You are patient with them. You give compassion. Oh, if I love that, myself, give that to myself. I got to have that same checklist. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It does, there's no exception of removing said checklist just because it's me. It's, it's one of the things that I always talk about with people when I'm like, when you ask 
the question why to yourself upon like, why is this happening? Or why can't I get X? You're always going to come up with an answer, but that why question, that word why triggers defensiveness and justification. So it either spins you into a narrative or a story, or it makes you feel very defensive if somebody were to ask it of you. So if you ask yourself why, the exact same thing is going to happen. You get defensive, you're going to make up a story and some excuses, and you're further going to trap yourself into that. So that's a really interesting idea to extend the same courtesy that you would someone that you love to yourself in that way. I think that distinction is really important because we say self-love and then we go off by ourselves and we're like, I can't believe you did that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the same leads to another concept and point that I like to make, which is every human being has been in a diaper at some point in their life, right? When we were six months old, we were literally crapping ourselves. No one was holding us accountable for that as though we had done something wrong, right? Or you have a puppy and the puppy hasn't been house trained yet and makes a mess on the floor. You don't hold that unaware being Mm -hmm. accountable for it. That is true of who we are to the very end of our lives, Mm. right? That you don't hold six month Victor accountable for the fact that he was crapping himself in a diaper, (laughs) right? So now you are Victor at this state in your life. And 10 years from now, you will know better than you do right now. That's right. Some part of it, some part of your own story, some part of your own self-narrative, some part of your own self-awareness will grow. And so if you're holding yourself accountable for what you don't know right now, it's the equivalent of holding that six-month-old accountable for crapping himself. So you have to understand (laughs) that every person, especially the people who are being mindful, I know your whole podcast is about the Zen Stoic, the self-awareness, the self-growth, the the release of your own inner bonds and all those things. I think that for anyone that is really trying to go down that path, two things are true. Number one, they tend to be harder on themselves than those who are willing to be ignorant to themselves. And number two, if they're really doing it that way, they should be giving themselves credit. They should be giving themselves that self-directed compassion and that forgiveness for the fact that I will know better. That doesn't mean that I have to know better now. Yeah, that's a great point. I think of it too. My girlfriend, Heather, she does a podcast and on one of her episodes, Mm -hmm. she was talking about something really interesting to this point where she was talking about a gratitude practice and how many people seem to use a gratitude practice almost like another means of bullying themselves Mm -hmm. for not being grateful. And they like beat themselves up because they're not grateful right now. And I should be grateful. I have so much to be thankful for. And (laughs) it's in itself self-diminishing because the gratitude practice, the purpose of it, truth of it, or the core, I would say, is to feel gratitude. And if you're beating yourself up, not only are you not doing the gratitude practice, but you're doubling down on like the bad feelings that you're trying to avoid in the first place by being grateful. And I feel like that's really interesting that we sometimes with the best of intentions to do good things or to do the right thing according to personal development, we'll beat ourselves up on the road to get there. And it's actually ridiculous to think about. Yeah. One thing that you've taught me about, and I think this is one of the most profound lessons I've talked about on the podcast before, but I would like to share it with the audience directly from you, (laughs) is this idea that on this path of self-growth and self-discovery or being the seeker of wisdom, there is this whole concept of aloneness Mm. versus loneliness. Mm. I would love to hear about that. Yeah, this goes back to one of those paradoxes of you can be alone and you can revel in your aloneness, 
without it necessarily being loneliness. Loneliness essentially is, I desire to not be alone and I am. Reveling in aloneness is, I understand that something within me is unique. And just because I don't have a representation of a connection of my uniqueness to someone else doesn't necessarily mean that I have to then feel loneliness for that specialness. I think of self-development. One of the one of the best ways to look at self-development is you're constantly hiking a mountain that actually has no peak. Mm. Right? Yeah. There's always room to grow. There's always further up that we can go. And sometimes we look around and we realize there's no one in our lives that is either farther or along the same sort of level that we've gotten to. And we can't out of this, whether it's exterior influence or self-directed, almost self-delusion, we can second guess ourselves and say, maybe I shouldn't have progressed this far because now I'm the only one here and I don't have a peer group with this specialness that mm. I've found. And that's one of those places where you can truly revel in the aloneness Yes. If you don't focus on the loneliness. Mm. And if you have people in your life that you care about, there are ways to take what you've learned and reflect it and share it and bless others with it. Mm. Which means that in that self-growth path, if just because others may not be in the same place that I feel that I've reached because I've spent so much time climbing this mountain, doesn't mean I can't reach my hand down to them and offer them the opportunity to come and climb higher with me. That's right. And that doesn't mean that I have to require that of them, but it's one of those, a coach of mine a long time ago made a comment about how he appreciates when anyone that he works with sends the elevator back down. This <laughs> idea of you've made the progress, you've made the growth, and just because you're up here with the viewer is great, you're not staring out the window all the time, you're making sure to help those who are still trying to get where you've gotten. Yes. And not to say that either of us is so enlightened that no one else is on our level, but there are times that you get this sense of, I've been doing so much self-work, I've been doing so much to, to make myself better and more aware, that whether it's right or not in that moment, you can feel as though the rest of the world or the rest of your community isn't there with you. And this is that sort of practice of appreciating yourself for the work that you've done, yes. rather than Getting, like you're saying, that sort of misguided gratitude practice of self-diffusing your approach is this just awareness of just because I am alone doesn't mean that I am lonely. Yes. Especially if, number one, if you truly love yourself, there's that basis of loneliness frequently comes from, I don't love myself enough and I need someone outside of me to make me feel that. And the second part is, if you are really focused on self-growth, it's almost impossible to not want to give that back to your community in some way. Yeah. So even when you are feeling that aloneness, it can frequently be the kernel that plants the seed that grows to this giving back to the community, however small that may be. Yeah. And it seems incredibly instinctual at that point because one thing that I heard early on in my journey was this idea that one of the main purposes of relationship is that it magnifies the human experience substantially. There is so much more you can experience in relationship, whether that's with friends, family, or an intimate partner that magnifies any emotions or feelings that you could possibly have to 
almost an infinite amount. As you continue along that path, there's always something new to discover. And what's really fascinating in you saying this is that I remember through our coaching, like right before I met my girlfriend, I had this awareness where for the first time in my life, I was alone without being lonely. Mm. And I just happened <laughs> to, to meet my girlfriend <laughs> a couple weeks later, <laughs> almost as if that was a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Imagine that. You ha if you had been going in the world with loneliness, looking mm -hmm. to fulfill it, you're then likely attracting other people who have a similar idea. And now what you're actually doing is you're basically going out and looking for codependence. And you're going to attract that in a partner. And so now... It, you may even have what on the surface seems to be a functional relationship. It may seem to be a rewarding relationship, but it is not a self-centered connection. Mm. And so I think of it as two, two sides of something where if I'm over here and I'm standing up completely straight on my own and completely balanced, self-centered, mm -hmm. and so is my partner, we then build this thing between the two of us. And if the thing between the two of us ever falls... We're still standing upright. Correct. And if either of us ever falls, it may waver the relationship we've built between us, but it doesn't cause the domino effect. Whereas if we're both looking to each other mm -hmm. and then one of us falters, mm -hmm. we're both going to falter. So it's this idea of I can be complete, mm -hmm. my partner can be complete, and then between us we can create something new. Yes. Um, the other mental model or image that I like to use is people always talk about my cup overflow, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of your emotional capacity is a cup. And when you fulfill yourself, the cup is full. And if you are a full cup and your partner is a full cup, and then you create this surplus, you start filling the cup between the two of you. Mm -hmm. And now that's where as a union between the two of you, as a partnership, you actually have a surplus of love, compassion, and, and this energy to then actually go out into your community mm. and better the people around you and improve the lives of others. That's right? right. And for some people, it's as simple as we love each other so much, we're going to have children. And now we can mm. put that extra cup filling into the cups of our children. Yes. For some people, it's you and your partner both have a very outgoing mindset of how do I impact others' lives meaningfully so that their lives are better. When you have a partner and yourself both coming from this self-fulfilling, self-caring place where you're not working to get from each other what you don't get from yourself, then in the relationship you build together, there is that surplus that you can actually allow to make other people's lives better with it. That reminds me of something. Okay. Especially that imagery of the cups. Oh, there are some, sometimes in relationship, people will... <laughs> not have their cups full, complain that they're not full, and then try to bring another cup in, whether that's a child, a marriage, something else that, to that degree, when people essentially try to get pregnant as a way of saving a marriage, mm. then they're trying to fill, for, fill that new cup from empty cups, and then nobody's cup is full. What are your thoughts on that when people try to use things like children or marriage to fix a relationship? Yeah, this is definitely, I can't speak to the anthropological ties of this, but this is something that personally I've seen a lot in America and in the westernized world, mm -hmm. is this idea that, excuse me, this idea that we've bought into the Disney mentality, mm. that finding true love somehow is the finish line that fixes the problems we have within ourselves. Yes. 
And so instead of taking that approach of I'm going to be my complete self and then go find someone who is their complete self, it's this idea of I'm half of the whole and I'm looking for the other half of the whole. And so when marriage is looked at as a finish line, I find that's a relationship that to me, that's a big relationship red flag. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Whereas what most people don't realize is that relationships are basically like level ground and marriage is the beginning of the, of the mountain climb. You've now, because when you're not married and there's no kids involved, if you hit really turbulent times, okay, peace, I'm out, yeah. no problem, let's go on about our own ways. That's right. But when you've said to someone, you know what, I care enough about you that not only do I love who you are, I love who you have the potential to become, mm. win, lose, or draw. Mm. That's what marriage should mean. That's what raising children together should mean. And so when you're looking at your partner and you're saying, okay, we can fix this by getting married because it's broken and marriage will fix it. Mm. I think people have that sort of, that's the kind of backwards approach to what they're looking at. Yeah. What it should, what marriage really should be is like I said, that commitment to, I care about who you are and who you are at a core level, Mm -hmm. not just how you live your life, not just your daily habits, not just, but who you are fundamentally. I've gotten to know you so deeply. You've been transparent with me, honest with me, clear with me about who you are at a core level that any of the stuff that changes on the outside of that core, I'm happy to modify or adapt or adjust for, but who you are as a core and who I am as a core, I think we have a life together that can sustain any other of the minor changes that are not core value changes. This is one of the reasons that marriages are typically most successful when they share certain elements. That can be religious values, socioeconomic backgrounds, certain level of education, political views. The more fundamental and deeply rooted into a person those values are that are in alignment, the more likely that relationship is to sustain. So just because you like to go and be active and she likes to be a homebody, that's not as big a deal as if you lean conservative and she leans liberal or you are of some sort of organized religion and she's an atheist. Like those are the times where, and it's not to say that can't work, but when a family or a relationship has the same what I call Godhead, which Mm. doesn't necessarily have to be religious. I have a really good friend that the Godhead between him and his partner is that they've always both wanted children. Mm. They've always both wanted children in a two-parent household, and they've always both wanted children in a two-parent household where the mother stays home. Mm. So that concept is the Godhead of their family. Yes. And so the children become the focus of that core value system. Yes. And since they both share that as a core value system, when the little stuff comes up, which to some other couples would be big stuff, religious differences, cultural differences, dietary differences, habitual differences of what they're going to do with their time and whatnot, they both revert back to what is the best decision we can each make for how it impacts the children and that desire we have for the children to have a certain level of household that functions in a certain way that we both didn't have as children and want to bestow upon our children. And so it simplifies all of those decisions when that God has the same. For some, it's that they want to be a double income with no kids. They want they both want to be a power couple. Mm-hmm. And their goal is to, whether it's for altruistic purposes and they want to be philanthropists, or it's for self-natured fun and enjoyment of, I want to financial independence through retirement early, and I want to travel the world and see everything and be hedonistic. If they're both on the same page of that as being a sort of core value of how they're going to live their lives, 
then that path can be walked together. Yes. Another image I love of this is the idea of, have you ever been in a, in a, on a country road or a farm area where there's not really a road, but there's a spot where you can tell that the trucks keep going. So there's that spot where the grass has all been killed on two paths, yep. but it keeps growing in the middle and it keeps growing on the sides. That is that sort of ideal path for two people to walk because we each are walking our own path, but we can each hold each other's hand and reach out and be there for support and communicate clearly. If those two paths started to deviate far enough, you'd have to reevaluate, is this still a union that makes sense? The more intrinsic and in tune those core values are to each person, the more likely those paths are going to keep moving together, even if they don't necessarily have the same direction the whole time. That's fascinating. I, and I'm so glad you brought up the relationship Godhead theme, because that is something that I have always been fascinated by because I remember we've talked about it before and I it was completely out of my mind I didn't even think I wanted to ask you about that but then you brought it up anyway so I'm very <laughs> glad that you did because that is fascinating how does one go or how does a couple maybe go about discovering what that godhead is within their relationship like what are some ways that you can see if you really are on the same page with that person from that core fundamental level Ideally, those are questions that you answered before you were in the relationship. One of my favorite exercises is to take a piece of paper, portrait, landscape style, so you turn it sideways, long ways, fold it in half, and then fold it in half again so that you have, when you unfold it, you have four columns. Yes. Right? Three little lines, four columns. And you write categories, must, should, shouldn't, and can't. Mm. And these are traits that will arise in intimate partners. So... Simple thing, a good example for myself is someone can't be a cigarette smoker. Mm -hmm. I don't like the smell. I don't like the taste. I want to be inspired to make out with my partner. I don't want someone to be coming in from a cigarette break and me being like, I don't want to kiss you right now. Little things like that. For some people, you must be family oriented, right? Maybe your desire all your life has been that you want to have children. If you're going to have a partnership with someone that has no idea what they do or don't want with children or knows for a fact that they don't want children, if you know that your long-term desires are to have a family and to have children, that should be in your must category. And then when you're actually meeting and having relationships with people, it will inspire and encourage you to ask the harder questions earlier. So instead of waiting until you're three months involved in a relationship with somebody that swept you off your feet, and then all of a sudden you're like, so what are your thoughts on kids? And all of a sudden you find out, oh, I'm never having kids. What did I just waste three months over? That's right? right. That should have been a conversation on second or third date if it's truly in your this must happen category. And I will answer your question as to what to do once you're in the relationship, but yeah. the Godhead thing should be something that is pretty easy to identify within yourself. Mm. Right? If you were brought up with certain traditions or a religious kind of affiliation, or a lot of people, their culture means enough to them, right? They were brought up in some sort of religious or ethnic identity that they hold true and they are passionate to it. Maybe your children need to be brought up with that. Maybe even if you're not going to have children, your family unit of just you and your partner needs to represent a fulfillment of that. So you have to ask yourself, okay, do I need my partner to also represent this? Or do I simply need my partner to respect and encourage and admire this? Mm. Um, and so those are the kind of questions that you want to be asking yourself before you get to the point of, do I love you? Um, because loving someone is an amazing feeling. I, I love you, right? You are like family to me, mm -hmm. but there's more than just love 
to represent true compatible unity for a long-term relationship. That's right. Now, once you're in a relationship with someone, it's more important to understand that one of the hardest things that we can do in relating to interpersonal relationships when there's already a bond of intimacy, love, affection, compassion, community, is to be honest with ourselves and then be willing to be transparent with that honesty towards the other person. Mm. And this is one of the fundamental things that I actually coach. Yes. Which is that willingness to be brave, mm. to be honest with yourself, and then be mm, have the ability to decipher where in the world you need what level of transparency and opacity mm. about that self-honesty. That's right. So maybe simple example, someone is being really honest with themselves and they realize they're bisexual, pansexual, gender fluid, something. And there's someone in their family that is going to distance themselves from them or cause problems in their relationship with them. If they're completely honest and transparent about that may or may not be the best decision to be completely honest with yourself and completely transparent with everyone. Mm. Now, that's an independent individual decision. There are going to be those types of people who are like, this is who I am, forget anybody else that doesn't like it, and so I'm gonna be honest with myself and transparent with the world, and if you can't handle it, that's your own bullshit, go and take that elsewhere. I don't need to deal with that for you. But then there are going to be others who, this is who I am, but this person is important enough to me, and so, I can keep certain elements of who I am to myself for the sake of respecting their sensitivity. Mm. Neither of those is the wrong decision, but it's a very personal decision to make. Yeah. One has so to you, choose that for right. themselves. But when you're talking about a long-term interdependent relationship, you need to take that honesty and be as brave as you can with yourself and be as truly honest as you can possibly be about what your core values are and what are your values gonna be 20, 30, 40 years from now that aren't gonna change and with that inter that true intimacy relationship, that true partnership relationship, you need to turn up the transparency as high as you possibly can. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's core even, of my current relationship. Yeah. Even if you've been in a relationship for two years, you think about this, let's say that great relationship is going to last you 40. You're only 5% of the way into that relationship. That's right. And so... Too many people get what's called pot committed, if poker terms. I'm unfamiliar with yeah, that the term. Idea, Okay, so the idea is that you've bet enough that even though you don't think that you're going to win the hand or you're not sure if you're going to win the hand, you emotionally are so attached to the money that you've already invested mm -hmm. that you're going to keep putting money in to see what the outcome is. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> that is not good in it's relationship. A, it's a bad decision in poker. It's a bad decision in relationship. So this idea of I've already spent two years investing my time with this person, I don't want to have to break this off and go and invest in a new person altogether from the ground level. But that's where I'm saying it takes that bravery mm. is if I'm looking at this person and I'm saying, okay, now after two years, I truly know this person isn't going to be the parent figure that I want co-parenting right. with me, or this isn't the person who's on a spiritual path of growth that I am, or this person, we're both financially motivated, but mine comes from this idea of I want to take care of my family and then be a philanthropist. And theirs comes from the idea of I want to go and enjoy life and be a hedonist. Mm -hmm. As you identify your own true nature and core values, and you identify whether or not they resonate together, or there's a dissonance to them, that's when you have to really be honest with yourself and willing to move forward through it. The other part of this that I think is important to, to, to say is what causes a breakup mm -hmm. in a relationship 
is people not being willing to identify their fundamental core value differences soon enough. Yes. I was in a relationship with a woman that, that you met when I was, when I met you, I was in a relationship with that partner. We had an amazing relationship for over four years. I still to this day have deep and meaningful love and affection for that woman. We still stay in touch. We communicate. She has a relationship in her life. I have a relationship in my life. We didn't break up so much as we evolved our romantic relationship to maintain the same level of trust and compassion and love and affinity for each other into a meaningful relationship that just is a friendship now because we didn't wait until it was so far into the dissonance mm. of we want different things that we couldn't maintain all of the things about each other that we did appreciate so much so that we were recently talking about this and she and her partner invited me and my partner to spend a day with her at Disneyland Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And she's going to cover entrance to the park. Oh, like this. So this is what I mean when I say if you're being honest and transparent, the earlier you can do that in a relationship. And like I said, I know that I was four years into this relationship with this person and we knew going into it some of the things that we were going to struggle with, but we really had a deep and meaningful love for one another. And so as we tried to navigate those and as we both solidified our own core values in the path and came to each other and shared with true transparency, we realized that there wasn't enough overlap in the Venn diagram mm. or middle ground that we were working from. And it was the best thing for both of us was to find what we both wanted out of romantic lives and maintain a compassionate, caring friendship for one another. So that's where you take that radical self-honesty that bravery yeah. and you have to be willing to come to that partner with it because it means one of two things going to happen and the hard one and the sad one is it might mean that the relationship isn't going to sustain mm. but if me and for example that partner had stayed together for 40 years mm. it would have been a lot more sad to break up then that's right and it would have been a lot harder to maintain a level of friendship that we have been able to because there would be all this baggage that we had carried and thrown at each other for all those years that we weren't being brave, that we weren't being transparent. And anything that you keep inside or under the surface to try to suppress it into the unconscious, I remember one thing that you shared with me is that anything you keep in there longer than like 24 hours starts to become completely distorted. It's like fruit that begins to spoil. Mm. And so if you're carrying that for years on end, the things that you haven't been transparent about, like you're going to have some really rotten fruit <laughs> That was once maybe a beautiful thing and has turned into this rotten thing yeah. that you have become so repulsed by that you've carried that you, you end up thinking that you have to throw it at them instead of in the beginning, just say, hey, here's this thing. How do you feel about that? Yeah. What do you think about that? And what's really interesting is I'm, I'm, like, as you talk about this, I'm starting to reflect back on like my journey and relationship. And I think one of the, one of the fascinating things is between the time of being alone without being lonely and or I'd say right before that time, mm -hmm. I remember you had shared this with me in our work together, this idea of being as transparent and sincere as early as possible. And I was doing that and I was going on dates and I like the dates weren't going well. And I remember getting on the phone with you. I'm like, Brandon, this isn't working. You're like, no, no, it is working. Yeah. You just don't like the results. <laughs> <that it's giving." laughs> and once I accepted that a week later, 
Heather came into my life. Because what you were experiencing is you were going out there and you were being honest with yourself and you were being bold about being transparent with those around you. And rather than looking to an immediacy of result, this external validation of, oh, she's pretty and she likes me and that's what I'm looking for. You were actually seeking this, I know what I want, I know who I am, and I'm seeking a union with a partner that's going to appreciate that, inspire that, and then take that sort of the truck path, mm. walking close enough to me that we can hold hands together. And when you really truly allow yourself to sit in that, resonate in that, and be in that space, mm -hmm. you gave yourself the opportunity to say no when previously you would say yes for the wrong reasons, now That's you're right. saying no for the right reasons. Correct. And that means that you're keeping yourself available to saying yes for the right reasons, mm. rather than taking yourself out of circulation of interacting with people, the dating world, the, however you want to look at it, and doing so for the wrong reasons. That's fascinating. Love that process. <laughs> <laughs> so be, before we begin to wrap up, I have one final question that I'd like to ask my guests on mm. the show as the interview portion goes beyond just what Zen Stoic is. And it, it goes to pointing to the unifying truth, or at least what Zen Stoic aims at, which is liberation and living a liberated life. Mm. What does it mean to you to live a liberated life? So at its core, liberation to me is this representation of freedom, but it's freedom in many different ways. So it's one of the things that keeps people from being free is their own attachment and their own bonds to things that don't actually serve them for the purposes that, again, that we were talking about those core values that aren't as meaningful to them. And to me, liberation is this idea of even if it hurts, even if it's hard, even if you don't think you want to, is to let go of the things that aren't serving who you most truly are. Mm. Because when you're holding on to things that aren't letting you you know, I think of it as like a damper. Imagine just a, a guitar string resonating or a bell chiming. Anything that doesn't resonate with the frequency of your true nature mm. is like having a damper in that. Yeah. So imagine putting a sock in a bell and then trying to ring the bell. Is it going to make a noise? Sure, it's going to make a little thunk, thunk, <laughs> thunk. But when you take that sock out or anything that is keeping you from that freedom of truly resonating as the, who you are at your deepest self... All of a sudden that bell is just going to ring clear and it's going to ring so clearly that others are going to see it. Others are going to hear it, be inspired by it, by ins inspired by who you are. And so you will be able to positively influence those others around you, even if that sock, for example, if we're talking in that metaphor, is something that you're fooling yourself into believe that you need or that serves you. And that's where that takes that bravery of self-honesty to look at what is serving me? What isn't serving me? Who am I at my core values? Who have I tried to be for purposes of alleviating? That's what I'm looking for. Not pandering, playing out the role that the outside world or the outside influences have had on me, whether that be parents or community or partners or family or work or whatever it is. A lot of times we let the world decide who we are supposed to be. And when we're not taking that brave self-honesty, we let the outside influence have more influence than the inside influence. Yeah. And so liberation is the idea that the inside influence of who I'm going to most authentically be mm -hmm. and being brave about being honest with myself about that takes priority and takes precedence. Yes. And even if that means that it upsets some of the people around you or it 
means that you have to make drastic changes in your life, it can be important enough that, again, I keep going back to that word brave. It's a brave thing to do, mm-hmm. to be the truest form of yourself, especially the longer you've gone and the further you've moved away from where that real self-centered place is. That's right. That was an amazing answer. I love it. <laughs> it's very <laughs> inspiring and also practical simultaneously, which is which are always the best answers to, to a question like that, right? Because it can be a loaded question for some people. So if people are listening to this and they're interested in working with you or getting to know more, where can people find you? What's the best way to get in touch? Um, yeah, I don't really, I only work through word of mouth and I only work through what I consider to be authentic um, references and recommendations. So if people have a way of getting in touch with you mm-hmm. and, and you want to have them just bring up my name, uh, I'm totally fine with that. I don't actually really have marketing mechanisms. <laughs> I don't have social media. Mm. Um, one of the things in my understanding of my authentic self has been the realization that I'd rather have a very small, deeply meaningful and vulnerable set of friends and people that I work with and those types of things. And although I've worked with companies that have taught me a lot about social media marketing and advertising and web funnels and all that kind of stuff. I find that the clients that find their way to me through the natural connections and interactions that I'm having in my life tend to be the most fruitful for both parties. That yes. They end up having the best results and I end up having the most sort of gratification for the work that we do together. Um, so I am open to, to working with people that find me through your podcast and through your resources um but i think i guess i mean honestly the, the best way they can do it is be like you know hey that guy was on your podcast can you get me in touch with him <laughs> give me in touch and with brandon you, and, and you, i will yeah for those of you who are listening <laughs> i will get you in touch yeah you have all of my contact information that's you, right if someone reaches out to you and they're looking to work with me you can give them any of my personal info that you have amazing brandon thank you so much for being on the show awesome appreciate it i hope you enjoyed this episode it is my mission to help as many people as possible to live a liberated life with unshakable inner peace through the content on this podcast. Subscribe to this channel with notifications on to be notified daily whenever we share a new episode. 